Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's uh, lesson. Uh, if you got your Bible and you want to follow along, uh, we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Um, and the title of our lesson is Noah's Ark, part 2, which is a continuation from last week. I want to begin this morning with two quotes. And one of these quotes you're going to recognize uh, uh, probably pretty easily. And the other you probably won't. Let's start with the one that we will recognize. It says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's Hebrews 11.3. Now that is a statement of faith. The Bible says that faith is the evidence of things unseen. So the very definition of faith is you believe in something that you cannot see. Or you believe in something that you don't necessarily have evidence for. Or you believe in something that cannot be, cannot be proven. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says. By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God. We can't prove that. I mean, there's no way we can just absolutely prove it. Uh, there's not, you know, the evidence that we find uh, can can lean toward it. But but again, it can be, you know, it's not going to be 100% proof. It's something that we just understand. It's something that we believe. It's something that we know by faith. Now, let me give you the second quote. This is from George Wald, who is a professor of biology at Harvard University. And he said this. One only has to contemplate the magnitude of this task, and he's talking about evolution, to concede the spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Now, let me, let me repeat that one more time, what he said. He said, you only have to contemplate the magnitude of this task to concede that spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Yet, here we are, as a result, I believe, of spontaneous generation. You see, just as much as the Bible is a statement of faith, this quote is also a statement of faith. George Wald believes that he is a result, that our human race is a result of spontaneous generation. In other words, we just came out of nothing. Now, he cannot prove that. He has no evidence of that, but yet he believes that. Now that is, is faith. You see, at, at the end of the day, whether you're a Christian or whether you're an evolutionist, we both begin with faith. And, it, and what happens is our faith actually determines what we see. What I mean by that is that if you believe that you are a product or we are a product of spontaneous generation, that a bunch of chemicals got together and somehow created life, then you'll interpret what you see in light of that belief. At the same way, if you believe the Bible is true and all that it says, then you'll interpret what you see in light of that belief. You see, the fact is, as we come to Noah's Ark, I can't prove exactly how Noah did something. We can guess, we can speculate, we can postulate. But but at the end, we can only show it was possible to do something. You see, the fact is, it will always be a matter of faith. Always. You, you either believe the scripture, 
in what it says, and that's your starting point of faith, or you don't. But at the end of the day, it's faith in something either way. Now today, as I said last week, we're going to be talking a lot about animals, and specifically the animals on the ark. And the reason is that, the reason we're going to spend the, the amount of time on it that we are is that it is the part of the story that probably invites the most uh, skepticism and the most criticism. Now, I want to give you a couple of examples. The first is by a guy by the name of Robert Jamison, and he wrote this in 1870. He said, We must imagine motley groups of beasts, birds, and reptiles making their way from the most distant and opposite quarters of the world to the spot where Noah had prepared his ark, natives of the polar regions as well as the deserts and the jungles. So you can see what he's saying. He's being sarcastic. He, he's saying, hey, can you imagine that, you know, here's these animals that are coming from the North Pole. They're coming from Australia. You know, they're coming from South America. They're coming from the Egyptian desert. And they're making their way all across to whatever to where Noah is. And to him, that's 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 an impossibility, and so he is he's basically very sarcastic about it. Another quote from a guy by the name of Marcus Dodds, and he wrote this in 1890. Selected specimens of the animals of Australia, visited by some premonition many months earlier, crossed thousands of miles of sea, singled out Noah, and surrendered themselves to his keeping. Now, a couple of things he's talking about. There are certain animals today that live only in Australia, such as the kangaroo. And Australia, of course, is an island. Um, and so for them, what he's saying is for these animals to get on the ark, they would have had to cross thousands of miles of sea to get to Noah. And of course, to him, that's impossible. How could they do that, right? Um, and when you first hear these quotes like this, you think, yeah, you know, that that sounds kind of that sounds kind of kind of logical. And and these are the statements or the types of statements that very easily sometimes lead people to believe that what Noah did was an impossibility. But there's there's a few things wrong with what they say, and and besides the fact that they have the audacity to actually ridicule the scriptures, there turns out to be some serious issues with their reasoning. First of all, they make assumptions based on scientific knowledge in the late 1800s. They act like we know everything there is to know, right? And they make assumptions based on that. But in the last 100 plus years, we've learned a lot that was not known at that time. And so that's their first mistake, and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit more as we move through our, our lesson. Secondly, they remove all elements of the supernatural from the story. Now, let me say this. I don't think it's necessary to depend on miracles to explain all aspects of the animals on the ark. As I said in the, in, 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 in the lesson yesterday, you know, God could have easily saved the animals a different way. He could have just miraculously uh, put them all on a mountain and, and only allowed the water to come up so high. Uh, he could have easily, easily recreated the animals after the ark. I mean, there's no reason. He could have let all the animals die, and he could have just recreated them. 
But he didn't do that. He chose a man and his family, and he put them to work. And they worked for many, many decades building this ark. So it's not necessary to depend on miracles. God didn't depend on miracles for everything. But at the same time, you cannot discount God's uh, role in it either. For example, the Bible makes it very clear that certain aspects of the story do involve miraculous intervention from God. For example, in Genesis 6.20, it says, Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Again, it doesn't say, no, you're going to have to go get them. He says they're going to come in to you. So that's obviously would be miraculous for that to happen. Um, later on, um, uh, Genesis 7.16, it says, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So at some point, when Noah and his family went in the door and all the animals got in, God shut the door. Genesis 7.11, of course, on the day the flood comes, all the fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were open. That's God causes all that to happen. So you can't discount God from the story. But that doesn't mean you've got to use miracles to explain everything. Thirdly, they make the exact mistake that Peter said that they would make. We've read this uh, ver- these passages of verses several times in our study so far, and I'll refer it to you one more time, Second Peter 3, 3 through 6, where Peter uh, basically tells us what's going to happen. He says, in the last day, there's going to come scoffers, and this is what they're going to say. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, but they deliberately forget that the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. The world of that time, the antediluvian world, the pre-flood world, the way it was, was destroyed. You see, what was then is not now. Let's go back and, and look at those two quotes, and I'll explain what I mean. First is Robert Jameson. We must imagine motley groups of beasts, birds, and reptiles making their way from the most distant and opposite quarters of the world to the spot where Noah had prepared his ark, natives of the polar regions as well as the deserts and the jungles you see they assume or he assumes that the climate zones were the same then as they are today he assumes that the continents existed then before the flood as they do today that the mountain ranges and the seas were in the same places as they are today that the animals lived then in places like australia where they live today but you cannot make that assumption That's bad reasoning because Peter says and the Old Testament tells us that the world then is no longer. The flood would have changed all those things. In fact, we know scientific evidence. We know the climates then were much different than they are today. Um, Even evolutionists believe that the world at that time was much, much, much warmer that climate zones of today did not exist then. Now, now they don't necessarily call it pre-flood, but we know it is. And, and see, because of that, because the climates were different, animals of, of every kind could have lived in the same area as Noah. I mean, there would have been no reason, if, if you had one climate across the world, all the animals could have lived anywhere they wanted. Let me give you an example 
Lincoln County, Wyoming. If you've ever been to Wyoming, you know it's mountains and, and, and hills and, and cold weather and blizzards. But in a book, Fishing for Fossils, from March 1958, it says this, Palm leaves from 6 feet to 8 feet in length and from 3 to 4 feet wide have been uncovered there, confirming that the client was tropical and quite unlike the blizzard-ridden mountains of today. The theory was further substantiated in 1890 when an alligator was found. So you've got, in, in Lincoln County, Wyoming, you've got palm leaves and alligators. Sounds a lot like Florida, but that's how the climate would have been uh, back then. Let's look at Marcus Dodds. His quote, Selected specimens of the animals of Australia visited by some premonition many months earlier crossed thousands of miles of sea, singled out Noah, and surrendered themselves to his keeping. Now, first of all, as I've already said, he assumes that the continent of Australia, that's an island today, was an island then, but he can't assume that. You cannot assume that if you believe the Bible, because the Bible is clear that that has all changed. The other thing he says, is he looks at the fact that an animal would cross all this, uh, all this space um, and he would end up with Noah. And, and he acts like that's just the craziest thing that he's ever heard of, that animals could somehow have a, have, have a premonition and cross all this, all, this, all this space to get to a certain place. But he forgets that that happens every single year. It's called migration. Butterflies, penguins, whales, salmon, birds, they do it every single year. And scientists still don't understand how they, they do it. So we see animals today migrate. If God wanted, used, wanted to use migration for them to cross tens of miles or thousands of miles, that's his business. But we know they can do it. It's not something just that we're dreaming up out of thin air. So these, these arguments that these men use, uh, I hope you can see that their reasoning is not very sound. Now, let's turn to the skeptics' objections. When you read uh, some of the websites and you read some of the skepticism that's out there about Noah's story, especially with the animals, it seems like there are really three basic uh, criticisms or, or three basic skepticisms that are raised. The first one is this. Noah could not have collected all the animals in the world. Uh, number two, the ark could not have contained all of them. And number three, eight people could not have properly fed and cared for them for an entire year. So I want to address those three skepticisms or those three objections. So first of all, how many animals were on the ark? Now, scientists have recently estimated that there are... About 8.7 million species on the earth, but that includes uh, all living organisms, which obviously would be plants. About 1 to 2 million of those are animals. So, uh, and there's, and I'll be honest with you, they don't really know. I mean, there are so many uh, species out there, and they're, they say they're uncovering more all the time. So, a skeptic would say, see... There's no way you can get a million animals on that ark or two million animals on that ark. That's impossible, okay? But is that really how many were on there? Let's go to the scripture to see what it says. Genesis 6, 19 through 20. 
And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Now the first thing to point out is that sea creatures are not mentioned. So whales, fish, shrimp, oysters, clams, anything that lived and thrived in the water obviously would not need to be on the ark in order to survive. So that that eliminates many, many uh, animals uh, right there. Now what about insects? Well now this is one thing that we don't really know. Uh, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 7 that his the, the animals were limited to land-dwelling animals in which was the breath of life. Now, many uh, Hebrew scholars uh, believe that this probably would exclude uh, insects and other invertebrates or animals without backbones. Now, there are numerous arguments both for this and uh, against this. For example... Many insects could easily have survived uh, on floating plants and debris. I mean, think about ants. If, you know, we get a lot of tropical storms and hurricanes and, and we get a lot of rain. And if you actually go out, if you've got a pond, if you, after the rain, if you go out and look, there'll be ants everywhere. They, they just, they all get together and they float and they survive. Many insects can, can do that. Other insects, like bees, would it would not be so easy for them. So we just don't know the answer to, to this one. They might not have been on there. Um, if they were, that we they wouldn't have taken up much room, obviously. So so they're not really an issue as to whether or not they could have have fit. the The key here in these verses is is the words according to their kinds. Three times he says, "Of the birds according to their kind, of the animals according to their kind." of the creeping thing according to its kind. Now, what does that mean of their kind? Now, for us to understand this, we have to go back to school uh, for just a moment. I promise I won't make this any longer than I, than I need to. In our modern society, uh, scientists spend a lot of time studying living organisms. And to understand how they're all related to one another they are arranged into a classification system or into different groups. And this, these groups have a hierarchy. So at the very top of the, of the classification system is what's called a kingdom, right? So there are five kingdoms, and one of them, of course, is called the animal kingdom. Underneath the kingdom is something called the phylum. That's P-H-Y-L-U-M. This would be classifications like vertebrates, invertebrates. That They break them down a little bit more. Below that, you come to the class. This would be mammals, birds, reptiles, etc. Underneath that, you have the order. This would be like carnivore, primate, rodents, uh, on and on. Then you get down to what's called the family. And families would be like cats, dogs, uh, bears, weasels, things like that. As an example, for all cats, whether it's you're talking about a little tabby house cat to lions and tigers and cheetahs, they all belong to the same family. They're all cats, so they all belong to the cat family. But even there, just think about the diversity of features within that family. All I mean, just think about the cats and how diverse they are. You've got 
you've got no spots, you got spots, you got stripes, you got short ears, you got long ears, you got bobtails, you got long tails, you got big, you got small. I mean, it's just a huge diversity across that uh, family. Now, below the family, you have what's called the genus, G-E-N-U-S. And these are the animals within the family that are very closely related. They have very similar features. For example, in the cat family, you have three genuses. You have the Felis, which is the domestic cats. You have Panthera, which is lions, tigers, leopards, and jaguars. And then you have the Puma genus, which is panthers and cougars. Then at the very bottom, you have what's called the species. And this is where each individual species within the genus is given a name. So let, let's take a tiger as an example. Uh, it, it belongs to the kingdom of animals. It belongs to the phylum vertebrate. It belongs to the mammal class, the carnivore order, the cat family, the panthera genus, and its species name is Panthera tigris or tiger. Now, real quickly, I want to take a, I want to do a did you know. When you think about dogs, we just talked about cats, but think about dogs for just a moment. I mean, can you imagine, I, I, mean, I know, just imagine for a moment in your mind all the different dogs there are. You've got uh, Chihuahuas, you've got Great Danes, you've got Huskies, you've got Labradors, you've got Dalmatians, you've got Sheepdogs, you've got Poodles, you've got uh, Wiener Dogs. I, I heard someone the other day say they've crossed a Chihuahua with a Wiener Dog and they call them Chihuahuas. Uh, it, it, they're absolutely uh, amazing. Um, there's this species called the, the Canis lupus familiaris is, is probably more variable in size, shape, and behavior than any other living manual. There's just a huge, huge amount of variety among breeds, but all dogs belong to one species, not just one family and not just one genus, but they're all the same species. That, that's why they can breed with one another. So, because of this, scientists have studied their DNA to better understand how could one species give rise to so much variation. And most experts now believe that all dogs, no matter how different they are, originated from one single species, which is the gray wolf. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. Look at the variety of dogs, and they all came from one species. Uh, from from one uh, one wild dog, which would of course be the gray wolf. So I say all that to say this: was every species on the ark? No. You have to keep in mind that species is a term that we coined. It's a modern term used in our modern classification system. The Bible uh, that 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 term didn't even exist when the Bible was written. The Bible uses the term kind, or it's the it's the word men in Hebrew. And biblical scholars agree that the word referred to a much broader category than our modern term of species. In fact, instead of species, it probably refers to what we would term a family or a genus. John Woodmerap, in his book, Noah's Ark, A Feasibility Study, said this, If a kind means what we call today a genus, then there would only have, have to be 8,000 different genuses on the ark or a total of 16,000 animals. If the kind actually means a family, then there would only be about uh, 
a thousand families or two thousand animals on the ark. So again, we're probably talking somewhere between two thousand and sixteen thousand uh, animals that would have been on the ark. Now moving forward, we'll use sixteen thousand because that seems to be the most agreed upon number. Now we do need to keep in mind that when we come to chapter seven, God is going to tell Noah to take additional pairs of clean animals on the ark. Not sure why. Might have been for food. Might have been for a sacrifice. So when he gets off the ark, but it, that would be a modest number of animals. It wouldn't add significantly to the uh, amount. So you're talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, sixteen thousand animals. So could they all fit on the ark? Now. I'm not going to bore you with all the math, um, but this has all been calculated. There's two books which do a great job of this. The first one uh, was published in 1961. It's called The Genesis Flood by Dr. Henry Morris. And the other I just mentioned a few minutes ago is called Noah's Ark, A Feasibility Study. It was written by John Woodmerap in 1996. And, and, and both of these guys have done a lot of, uh, of studies on this. They've done the calculations, and so I would refer you to them if you want the, the details. Remember, the volume of the ark is 1.5 million cubic feet. It's broken up into three decks. It's calculated that you could fit over 500 boxcars inside the uh, ark. So it's not difficult to show <clears throat> that there was plenty of room for 16,000 animals, assuming you use the same floor space as a farm enclosure or a lab does today, okay? Now, keep in mind also, the vast majority of the creatures are small. In fact, these guys calculated that only about 11% of the animals would have to, would be much larger than a sheep. So, so there's only a few kinds of animals would literally have weighed hundreds or thousands of, of pounds, now, of course, we always want to know, well, what about the elephants, the giraffes, the rhinos, etc.? Um, you know, every time you see, it seems like you see a picture of the ark, it's a, there's a giraffe or an element, right, elephant, right? Because the bigger the animal, the more fascinated we tend to be with them. Well, it turns out, you know, how do you deal with all these big animals? Well, it turns out that the solution to this is pretty straightforward. And that is that God would likely have sent to Noah young animals, not full-grown animals. Now, not babies, not newborns. They would, of course, have to be weaned. But it would be animals that would be relatively small compared to adults. Now, you may say, well, why would he, why would he do that? Well, remember, the whole point of this is that they reproduce when they get off the ark. So, so why would you take a pair of middle-aged animals or older animals that have less time to reproduce. That, that makes no sense. You, you would want animals that would have a full reproductive life when they get off of the ark. And so to get young animals or weaned animals would just be the perfect thing to do that. And, of course, they would be much smaller than uh, adults. Now, what about dinosaurs? Everybody wants to know, were dinosaurs on the ark? Well, listen... Yes, dinosaurs had to be on the ark. Um, there's no, uh, there's no evidence uh, that they weren't on the ark. Uh, you know, the Bible doesn't say, to, you know, get all the ark, get all the animals except the dinosaurs. It says bring every, every 
right? So as far as we know, they would have had to have been on the ark. Now, listen, just as with the other animals, the dinosaurs would have died during the flood. And, and that is why we find them fossilized along with other animals in the sediment layers today. But the flood didn't kill them all. They would have been on the ark along with the other animal kinds. Uh, at the end of the flood, these dinosaurs get off the boat with the other kinds as well. But the, but the world they get off to uh, is very different from the one they left. You know, we may say, how, how could they have fit? Well, again, as I mentioned earlier, we seem to be always fascinated with the larger animals. And, and dinosaurs fascinate us because they are the largest animals to ever walk the earth. But although animals like the Apatosaurus and the Tyrannosaurus rex, they get all the press because of their size, the fact is most dinosaurs would have been smaller than a, than a turkey. But just even if they were large, the, the answer is just like we stated previously, would be the answer would be to be, bring pairs of young dinosaurs, not full-grown ones, onto the ark. Then you're dealing with, at the most, probably one or two-ton animals, which is still not a simple task, but a lot simpler than or reasonable than dealing with a 20-ton animal. Now, you may ask, well, what happened to them? Well, in the end, they went extinct the exact same way that animals do today. Um, I mean, we have animals going extinct every day, um, uh, even today, for different reasons. They may have gradually succumbed to disease. They may have been hunted until their population uh, dwindled. But just like the dodo bird that went extinct um, in the 1800s, we don't have to have some kind of cosmic culprit like a giant asteroid to explain it. I mean, there's, there's reasons animals go extinct, and those same reasons would have applied to the dinosaurs. How did Noah feed them all? Look at verse 21. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. So we know that they took food, but the Bible gives us really very little detail, no detail, in fact, as to what that food was. Now, the most general answer is Noah fed the animals hay, grains, fruits, leaves, whatever. But skeptics will say, well, there's no way you could have stored up the amount of food required to feed those animals for uh, a year. But you have to remember, and I keep going back to this, somehow or another, I think we've got this idea that these guys were cavemen, and we're the smart ones. But listen, they would have been smart. They, First of all, they lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, they were very smart. Their their DNA, um, their intelligence would have, uh, would have been... Um, much purer than ours. It hadn't degraded yet. And so I'm sure that, you know, the things that we know how to do, they probably knew how to do them just as, as well. They, For example, they would have known to use a combination of grain, which is less bulky, and compressed hay. Listen, if we got enough sense to know how to compress hay into bales and rolls, uh, trust me, I'm pretty sure they knew how to do it as well. Fruits and vegetables could have been preserved for the voyage by by drying. We don't really know if the animals at that time were carnivores or meat eaters or not. We, we just don't know. But if they were, 
he could have used dried meat on board or brought dried meat, which which is going to last a long time, and it requires very little room to store. You see, anti-Bible critics have compared the challenges of of caring for the animals with that of a modern zoo. See, they they take a modern zoo. And and they look at that and say, look at all the work it takes, all the money, all the time, all the food it takes for a modern zoo. There's no way eight people could care for all the animals. But see, once again, their reasoning is flawed. We, we have to remember there's a big difference between caring for animals in a zoo, which is a long-term prospect, as opposed to the ark, which is a temporary short-term thing. They're not interested. The the things like the animals' comfort, uh, or comfort their healthy appearance. You know, they're not going in there every day and brushing their coats to make. They're not doing that. That those things are not essential. They're in a survival mode. They need to survive for one year, and that's it. And then, um, and, and so that just keep them fed and watered, and uh, and get them through the year. That's their goal. Now, finally. We want to ask, you know, we'll just ask the question, well, what about the poop, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you got to think through things like that. What did they do with all the waste? Critics will point out that as much as 12 tons of animal waste may have been produced daily. And it seems impossible that only eight people could do that and get rid of all that on a daily basis. But I think the key here again is for Noah to work smarter, not harder. One possibility would be to use slatted floors to allow the waste to accumulate below the animals, which could then be dumped and cleaned. Or another option would be to use slope floors to allow the waste to flow into large uh, central containers. Some floor waste could uh, uh, even go below and could be stocked with hay or sawdust to soak it up. Uh, in other cases, with like with smaller animals, it's, it's possible you wouldn't even need to clean up. Um, for the year because you know the, it's small the waste is small enough that it could soak up into the hay or the sawdust or whatever the case may be and not even need to be cleaned um, let me throw out one other possibility now I mentioned earlier that I think a lot of this stuff can be explained in practical methods but it, it also doesn't mean that there aren't other methods as well for example one possibility is that the animals went into hibernation if they did, that would greatly alleviate the need to feed them and water them and, and remove their, their waste. You see, hibernation is something that animals do when they get under great stress. Uh, uh, like bears in the winter, when there's not enough food, they will their, their, their system will slow down and, um, and they'll go into hibernation. Now, critics will say, now wait just a second. You know, the vast majorities of the animals on the ark, there's no evidence that they hibernate. Well, that is true in today's world that, you know, some animals like, you know, I don't know much about them, but, you know, there might be some animals that we don't see hibernate. But, but again, they're forgetting two very important things. First, the world then was much different from the day. Hibernation may have been more widespread then than it is today. But again, they ignore the supernatural. God himself could have put the animals into hibernation. You know, there's no reason he couldn't have done that. We, we just don't know. Now, I want to close 
with one application. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot, of, as I mentioned earlier, I believe in Noah's Ark. I believe in the flood. I believe the animals were on there. Do I believe it because I've got all this evidence? No, I, I believe it because the Bible says it. That's enough for me. Um, it, you know, if we were to discover Noah's Ark uh, next week and, and uncover it and see how he did it all, that'd be great. Um, but it wouldn't change what I believe. If we don't find it, and I don't, I don't see why we would. Somebody asked me the other day, did they think they had found it over there? You know, you hear from time to time that you know, they've discovered Noah's Ark, and I just don't see how that's possible. First of all, the Bible's clear that it just it came to rest. It wasn't buried. It seems like every other old boat or old wooden structure that we've ever uncovered that's really old had to be buried in order to be preserved. But the ark landed upright, and, and they walked out, right? So it was not, there's no evidence that it was ever buried, and, and it's made out of wood. It's going to rot. Um, so I just, it, again, it makes no sense to me that we would ever find it, would just, you know, unless God preserved it in some way. But the point is, we believe because of the, the Bible is the Word of God. That's why we believe. But at the end of the day, I can't really prove anything. That's a lot of fun, I, I think, and very interesting to, to speculate and to think about how he could have done those things. Um, but at the end of the day, I want to close with, with this application, and that is Noah's obedience. Look at verse 22, which is the last verse of the chapter. It says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah is given a huge task that will take him ab decades to complete. Um, we don't know exactly how long, but probably 75 years or so in that time frame. But remember, he's just a man. He's not a superman. He's just a man. And I'm sure as he lay in bed at night and he thought about all the things that had to be done, just the doubts would have raged in his mind. How am I going to do that? How can I overcome this problem? Where's, you know, God has said, hey, I'm going to bring a flood. Where's all the water going to come from? That don't make any sense. You know, everybody thinks I'm an idiot. You know, every day I go out there and work on this ark, and every day people laugh, and, and everybody thinks I'm a fool. And year after year after year after year after year goes by. And and by the way, there's no Christian radio to listen to while he works to, to build his faith. There's no Christian books that he can go buy to tell you how to build your, you know, to live your best life now. There's no conferences to go to, to you know, to recharge his spiritual batteries. He's all alone. Hebrews 11, 7. And there's a reason, there's a reason why Noah is in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. There's a reason. Verse 7 of that chapter says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Here's my application. You see, today, even as you and I read the story of the ark in Scripture, the divine words of God himself, it's easy to have doubts. How did they, how did they feed them all? Where did the kangaroos come from? Did the animals try to eat one another? What did they do with all the waste? I mean, there's all these questions that we don't necessarily have answers for. And by the way, every single day, people are going by and they're ridiculing. 
they, they think you're an idiot because you believe the Bible and you don't believe the lies of evolution. And listen, we don't have, the, have all the answers, just as Noah didn't have all the answers. But you see, Noah believed in spite of that. He had faith. He believed the words of God, even in spite of the doubts, in spite of all the, 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 the unanswered questions, he believed. See, the same thing is here for us. The same question faces us today. Will we believe? In spite of not having evidence, in spite of not being able to prove what we believe, will we believe the words of God even when we don't have all the answers?